Welcome to Capital Considerations, the podcast that takes complex ideas from the investment world and makes them accessible to everyone. I'm your host, Tony Roth, Chief Investment Officer of Wilmington Trust. U.S. federal debt, from bubble to balloon, what does it all mean? Joining me today is my colleague, our Chief Economist, Luke Tilley. Prior to joining Wilmington Trust five years ago, Luke was an officer and economic advisor with the Federal Reserve of Philadelphia. Earlier in his career, Luke was an economist for the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development. Luke, thank you for being here today. Happy to be here. Today, Luke and I are going to discuss the long-term considerations of U.S. debt bubbles. The initial fiscal response to the COVID crisis was the release of a $2.9 trillion stimulus package. And Washington is now debating additional stimulus, which in our view could range anywhere from another 2 to $5 trillion over the next 12 months. But what are the long-term implications for this? And what should be done in the aftermath of the crisis to address the debt that we've taken on? And how do we ensure that we're not leaving our kids and future generations with a debt regret? So let's put this in context. Worldwide government response to COVID has been unprecedented in the speed and the scope. And to be sure, that's a good thing. Countries have locked down their populations to try to limit the spread of the virus. And it's created probably the swiftest recession that we've ever seen. Let's remember that we came into the year this year with a fairly positive outlook for GDP. And if we looked at the rate of our implied rate of growth, based on our estimates for January and February, we were probably close to 2.5% for GDP this year. And now we're going to see a drop in the first quarter due to the mitigations due to the essentially forced closure of the economy of a pretty massive amount. I mean, Luke, what are you thinking at this point in terms of the drop in GDP annualized for the second quarter? For the second quarter, we are projecting a 40% annualized decline. So it's important to remember that GDP numbers are, are reported as annualized numbers. So that's sort of uh, it blows it up to, to annualize it, but still, we're talking about roughly a 10% decline in our economy in a, in a fairly short amount of time, and that is uh, just unfathomable when we think about numbers that we're accustomed to seeing. And when we think about moving forward into the third quarter and fourth quarters, even if we have a somewhat successful reopening of states so that people go back to work to some degree, you're still not going to see a normalization of consumer behavior. People clearly are still afraid to go out and they're very constrained in their activities. So when you think about the rest of the year, what do you think the the third and fourth quarters might look like? So we're on the pessimistic side of this. Uh, I think reopening economy is not the same as restarting it. And we think that there are significant challenges as you've talked about in some of the other podcast episodes with the science and people feeling comfortable. Uh, and then just on the economic side, we don't think that businesses are going to return to their normal behavior, staffing levels or CapEx uh, like they did before. And workers are going to be a little bit reluctant too. Uh, so when we get to the end of the year, we're thinking uh, decline in the economy of uh, 5% or so in terms of real GDP for the year. Uh, just to put that in context, that, that's far worse than 2008 and 2009. So as a response to all of this, the government has spent a tremendous amount of money and will continue to spend a lot of money. And the term that I like to use is cash transfers, because what that means is that the government is finding different programs and mechanisms to put cash from, move cash from the treasury and put it into the hands of the unemployed, small businesses, and in certain cases, in terms of the Main Street program. And 
we've spent about or committed to spend around $3 trillion already, which is in terms of the size of the economy, probably 15% of the, of the economy as measured as a percentage of GDP. Um, just to remind everybody, we normally run deficits of 2 to 4% or so. And so that is 15% of GDP just from the first set of stimuli bills. And the House is looking at maybe another $3 trillion or so um, subject to negotiation. So really, when we put all that together, the question is, how much is enough? Um, but how much, apart from how much is enough in terms of the need to rescue the economy and to backstop the businesses and the, and the consumers and unemployed that are the recipients of these dollars, how much increase in government debt is really plausible or judicious or um, where, is there a limit to it? So maybe let's just start with, with that question, Luke. What do you think in terms of is debt inherently bad for the economy to take on? Um, should we be thinking about it through that lens and it should be minimized at all costs? Right. So, I mean, on the very general question of it, is debt inherently bad? Um, I'm going to say it depends, right? This is a classic uh, answer from an economist. It's, uh, because it really does depend. It depends on what the debt is used for, and it depends on the size of it. Uh, if you want to sort of use a more personal example, think about student debt uh, versus gambling debt. If you have a student that's taking on uh, debt in order to increase their ability to earn in the future, that would be uh, considered good debt. Uh, and countries do very similar things. My favorite example is the Eisenhower interstate system. Uh, first in, in 1956, uh, it was going to be $26 billion was the initial price tag for our GDP back then. It was about 6% of GDP, so it was this huge cost. Uh, it ended up at even costing more, uh, but you can see, you know, if you go back and go back to that debate, you can, just can't imagine not having that now because of the growth that it promoted. So I think it's a, an excellent example of good debt. And we talk about uh, other types of good debt that we could be taking on right now. Infrastructure is one of the obvious ones, talking about building wider nationwide broadband is something that gets talked about. Uh, so those kinds of things can be good debt. Uh, but a country can take on really bad debt, too. I think the most recent example is Argentina. Uh, they've got a history of this. They've defaulted on their debt eight times uh, in their roughly 200-year history, most recently last year. Uh, and that's because they essentially do the, the equivalent of somebody taking on a lot of gambling debt. They use a lot of uh, generous pensions and utility subsidies and welfare and a lot of high unnecessary public employment. Uh, and that doesn't really lead to higher higher productivity for a country. So it's sort of like a company, really, where a company can finance itself from debt or equity. Obviously, a country doesn't really have equity, but a country can finance itself from taxing its citizens or a country can increase its debt. And as long as its debt is not growing faster than the GDP, it would seem to be fairly sustainable, subject to a course of the amount of debt service that the country has to bear. If you have too much debt out there, even if perhaps your debt is growing within the confines of how fast your GDP grows, so you can grow your way out of, out of it over a long period of time. If you get to a point where the debt service is so large, that can be a problem in and of itself. 
Right, right, exactly. And, 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 and that's an important point, the size and the ability to pay it back in terms of growth. If you go back to the student debt example, I'm saying that a student taking on debt is a good thing, uh, but the size can be unbearable too. You know, medical students graduate with hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt, but their income sort of justifies it. Uh, you wouldn't want to have somebody graduating with that much debt if they were, a, you know, like an English or a social work major, even, even an economics major for that matter. It, that would just be too much, even though the, the, the type of debt is okay. Uh, but it comes back to exactly what you're saying. Are you going to be able to pay it back over time? So really, it's a question of scale, right? Debt is okay. It makes sense to take it on, especially in these circumstances, as long as it doesn't get too large. So the question is, is it getting too large? And how do we know when it's getting too large? And, and let me just, before you answer that, provide another framing of the same question, which is that there is a new term that has been introduced into our our political landscape called modern monetary theory, MMT. We can essentially, we being the U.S. government, the Treasury, can sell as much debt as it needs to in order to not even just in context of this crisis, bring us out of this crisis, but in order to provide the support and benefits to the society that we think are desirable and that we shouldn't even worry about the total amount of debt because if we have more debt that needs to get served. We can just issue more debt in order to pay the interest to service that debt. And someone will always buy it because we're the U.S. And that's sort of the premise of modern monetary theory. So when you think about how much is enough, and then you also think about this notion of modern monetary theory, what's your reaction to that, that whole sort of new ecosystem of thinking? I have a lot of uh, issues with sort of that that premise and the the modern monetary theorists because a lot of the things that that do come out of that that school of thought are true. The the U.S. does have the reserve currency; it can borrow uh, without any kind of limit, it would seem. But I think it's sort of that static, assumed nature that nothing's ever going to change. You know, so the modern modern monetary theorists will say this is all fine and good, and then they're trigger or their sign that there's something wrong is higher inflation. They say that as long as there is low inflation. And the problem is that economies are not static. Yes, we are the reserve currency. Yes, we are the world superpower. We can't go with the assumption that that's always going to be the case. Uh, if you tr- sort of exploit that too much over time, then you will end up having people doubting whether you're going to be able to pay back your debt. You will have investors driving your interest rates higher. That would lead to the inflation uh, and that is where it becomes a challenge. And then we basically have turned into some of those countries that have had debt problems over history. Maybe just remind us where we stood before COVID hit in terms of the size of the debt. And then from there, we'll talk about, okay, from that baseline, let's layer in all this additional debt we're taking on. To set the baseline, the U.S. has run deficits and basically had growing debt uh, for multiple decades now, a generation with the exception of the late 1990s. And really for the past 20 years or so, we've been in a worsening debt situation. Uh, and then when you throw in the tax law from late uh, 2017 that went into um, went into effect in early 2018, corporate tax cuts, individual tax cuts, and uh, definitely uh, making the deficit wider. So the Congressional Budget Office, which is sort of the 
the the arbiter and the best uh, projector of these things, very nonpartisan uh, arm of the government, was projecting trillion dollar deficits over the next 10 years and getting larger over that time, going from a trillion dollars this year on up to basically one point five. Uh, trillion dollars 10 years from now and just growing over time uh, inexorably. They would never really be coming down. So we were in a very bad situation as of January 1 in terms of our public finances and the size of the debt and the, the trajectory that we were looking at then. Now we have another $3 trillion that we've committed to. Plus we have, whether it's one and a half, whether it's three, if this scenario, I mean, subpar GDP, significant unemployment, real impairment to small businesses continues into next year, which is our base case scenario, clearly we're going to need some number of additional trillions of dollars of support, not just, by the way, for consumers and for small businesses, but probably for states and and local governments as well. So we have three. Let's say we're we're going to need another somewhere between two and five at a minimum over time. Where does that leave us, and, and when do you think we get to a tipping point? And how important is it that interest rates are so low? Because I know that the Treasury Secretary, Mr. Mnuchin, has said, hey, we can take this all on because rates are so low. It's going to be okay. The situation has obviously changed uh, quite a bit. And the CBO uh, released, uh, the Congressional Budget Office released uh, their new projections as of late April. So with the first uh, four stimulus packages, obviously not including any more that are coming down the pike. And then they have included that, that stimulus and then also a deterioration in the economy. Uh, and their estimate was for the deficit this year to have gone from that original uh, $1 trillion roughly up to $3.7 uh, So obviously uh, a much, much bigger hit, uh, as you said in the, in the opening, a much larger share uh, of the economy, which is sort of unprecedented in the post-war era. Uh, and so if we get any more stimulus coming down the line, then we'll have even more of that. I will point out that a lot of this debt is dampening the depth of the recession. So it would be a lot deeper without a lot of these cash transfers or the unemployment insurance component. And the idea there is that the government is trying to uh, basically improve the overall debt situation because if you don't do this, the economy gets hit even harder, your revenues get hit even harder. Uh, so in some ways, enacting all of this legislation uh, puts you in a better place because you have a, a a somewhat stronger economy and you haven't had your revenues hit as hard. Uh, but the fact remains that we're dealing with a much larger uh, debt situation on the other side of this crisis uh, than we had going in. It means that interest rates are uh, likely to be higher. Uh, you know, the Federal Reserve is going to be trying to keep interest rates low. But all other things being equal, if we have a larger debt load out there, uh, just like you know, giving a loan to somebody who's a little bit more uh, risky, you would charge them a higher interest rate, uh, and that's certainly a possibility. I mean, look, you have four children, and we always used to say before COVID that when we had a conversation around debt, we were sacrificing our children's futures by basically bringing forward economic growth. Do you feel even more so, even though it may be necessary and right that we do this, do you really get worried around the burden that your kids are going to have to deal with? Um, our kids are going to have to deal with? Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely more worried. So I think the way I always said it uh, pre-COVID, uh, if somebody asked me, are you worried about uh, the debt and deficit situation? I would say in the next year, not at all. Over the next 10 years, yes, definitely. And for my kids, absolutely. Uh, and I think that the only real change is that those statements have gotten uh, even greater in magnitude, that the concerns are larger uh, because it was going to be a daunting task to uh, pay it back. Not impossible. 
it is it is a, a possible thing to do. We have the economy that can do it, uh, but it's obviously a challenge uh, politically, uh, and now it's going to be a challenge uh, coming out the other side of the, the virus. So I want to talk about the relationship between the Treasury and the Fed and the role the Fed plays in all this. Um, but before we get to that, I want to have one last question on the size of the debt, which is to analogize ourselves to Japan. When you think about where we're headed and you think about what Japan has dealt with, where they've been in maybe not a recession, but basically no growth for decades now. They have a debt-to-GDP ratio that's 200 250%, a very large number. To what degree are their struggles due to that versus demographic issues? To what degree do you think that we risk becoming them because of the debt? Or do you think that our problems really are different than, than Japan because we have a very different kind of society? Our problems are different, but uh, we were sort of headed that direction because Japan's situation is mostly because of basically a decline in population and a decline in their labor force. And so that takes away from their ability to grow their economy and their ability to pay their their debt back. And as you said, uh, between 200 and 250% of GDP, they're sort of at the developed world's highest. And there are others that are sort of in, in the neighborhood of us. Italy is about 135% of GDP, and they do have higher interest rates, but they haven't gone over sort of like this tipping point like Argentina. Uh, the United Kingdom is in a similar situation to us. So this is, this is sort of a, a common story. The most important thing here is that Japan still does have uh, low interest rates. People are willing to invest in their debt. And that comes back to the crux of it. And it's basically uh, that people believe that they will be making payments on it, that they are good uh, to make payments on it, and they'll be able to do that. And this is going to lead into a discussion about the Fed, uh, is that they are not going to use sort of the printing presses to inflate away the debt. There's, the, there's, there's public faith and investor faith uh, that the debt is good and that people are going to get paid back for it. So I like that you bring in the printing presses because it's a good segue to think about the relationship between the Treasury and the Fed. Already this year, the Fed has increased its balance sheet by about $2.5 trillion. About 1.7 of that 2.5 is attributable to government bonds, U.S. government bonds, that the Fed has purchased from the Treasury, essentially, or from the secondary market. So now that we're projecting that the Treasury will probably introduce another $3.5 trillion of bond issuance this year, well, that has the impact of reversing a lot of the liquidity that the Fed has worked so hard to introduce into the system. So we've all heard of quantitative easing, of course. So quantitative easing means that the Fed is going out and buying government bonds and mortgages, and those securities come out of the system in a sense to go on the Fed balance sheet, and all that cash that was on the Fed balance sheet goes out into the system, and it creates liquidity. It makes markets function better. Um, it helps to push interest rates down. But now that the Fed is going to go and throw another $3.5 trillion of assets into the pool, that sort of reverses that liquidity pump of the Fed. So do you see that as problematic or do you see that the Fed will just jump in and buy all those securities so that it doesn't impact the liquidity of markets, doesn't pull out the cash that's already out there, um, in, in which case it raises the other problem, sort of the, the Venezuela problem, where it's just a round circle where we're just printing money and buying our own money. Yeah, so so there, there are two different worlds here that you've described. And one of them is unambiguously bad. It's the Venezuela, it's the Argentina, it's uh, Zimbabwe famously did this several years ago. I actually have sitting right next to me here a couple of notes from the uh, from Zimbabwe that are the $1 trillion notes that they had to print because their 
fiscal situation got so out of hand and their inflation got so high that they had to print these things. And that, and that situation is sort of when the Treasury and the Fed are one in the same. If the Treasury needs to issue debt because they are profligate and because they're handing out uh, subsidies and, and it's unsustainable, and then the central bank of the country turns around and buys all of it, that is just monetizing the debt. And it debases the currency, and that's how you get to those downward spirals. And that is unambiguously the worst situation you can be in with a government issuing debt and the central bank uh, just being a patsy and, and sort of been buying all of it. And that is where you don't want to be or else all bets are off. The better situation, but it's still going to create challenges, is exactly uh, what you're saying. Uh, the Fed is operating independently. They purchased a lot of treasuries already this year, as you said, $1.7 trillion. Uh, but that's to achieve their goals. As you said, they were returning liquidity to the markets. They wanted to sh- make sure that the market is functioning. Uh, and they also have other goals in the past, you know, 10 years ago, creating a QE program that was to push down on lower long-term interest rates and trying to promote growth. As long as those decisions are independent of just uh, financing uh, the government's, Congress's uh, deficits, then that, that can be okay. And it's going to lead to some of the challenges that you're, that you're talking about. And that's where we are now. So as you said, uh, much higher deficits expected this year. We'll have to see what's coming with this next fiscal package. Uh, and the Fed is likely to buy more treasury uh, the, later on this year, either to uh, try and help the economy or to uh, return some of the liquidity to the market. Uh, but it's probably not going to be enough and hopefully not enough to absorb all of the Treasury debt uh, or else we would be in that sort of that, that worst of all situations. So they're not going to buy all of it. There needs to be somebody who's going to buy that Treasury debt, still have the faith that they're going to uh, get paid back in order to finance all of this stimulus. And look, I know that as a, a former Fed official, this, this term is going to make your spine, which is the term yield curve targeting. And the Fed does not want an overly steep yield curve right now. In other words, it doesn't want rates to go too high because it will cause impairment to borrowing. A lot of the programs that the Fed has designed and launched and implemented are designed to try to cause banks to lend money at, at reasonable and low rates to, to customers, uh, to businesses, to individuals. And if, in fact, the Treasury issues all these securities and there aren't enough buyers out there, we'll see rates move up pretty high. And so the Fed may have to buy a lot of these treasury securities in order to keep the, the call it the 10-year rate below 1% or wherever it wants to see it. And as investors, we need to keep a very careful eye on that. What's your, your reaction to that line of thought? Yeah, so that's where uh, if you could characterize this as possibly the Fed getting backed into a corner. Uh, if their mandate, and it is their mandate to keep uh, interest rates sort of moderate and their stated goal is to keep interest rates low in a situation like this in order to promote growth. Uh, if the interest rates start moving up, then they are, um, for all intents and purposes, being backed into a corner that they'd be forced to make purchases of that debt in order to keep the, the interest rates low. Um, the Bank of Japan employs a a uh, strategy of this, the yield curve control and trying to target the uh, the yield on the 10-year treasury. That kind of a strategy could be extended to basically the entire yield curve, as you say, to any any point along the maturity curve. Um, Japan does it without having to buy uh, too many. You know, they're not financing the, the entire deficit uh, of the government, but that would be a step towards, uh, as I said, sort of backing the Fed into a corner and getting closer and closer to uh, that subpar situation, uh, suboptimal situation where the Fed is financing all of the debt. 
it's suboptimal, not because there's some inherent limit to how big the Fed balance sheet could be, right? The Fed balance sheet could be as big as it wants to be, but it's the, it's the circle that's being created around the government financing itself by essentially selling debt to itself. That's really the more concerning part. Do I have it right? You're exactly right that there's no uh, functional or legislated limit on the size of the Fed's balance sheet. The reason it would be so bad is if the Fed was financing all of the government's deficits. Uh, and then importantly, if investors uh, believe that that would go on and that that was sort of the new status quo, that uh, the values of the currency drives up inflation, high interest rates, uh, all of those terrible things. So, Luke, I wanted to give you a chance to add any final thoughts if you have any. Yeah, I think that it's important to point out that uh, as as challenging as this situation is, we're not in an impossible situation. We do have a large, strong economy. We are able to solve these problems. It doesn't need to be that we balance the the budget on a yearly basis or even that we eliminate all deficits. Really, the goal would be to put the debt to GDP ratio uh, on a downward trajectory so that you're paying off some of the debt on net relative to your economy, the size of your economy, paying it down a little bit each year, that debt to GDP ratio. It's not impossible, not even not even close to impossible. It does require some some very hard decisions, uh, but I think it's very attainable. And that's what we should be shooting for uh, when the sort of the crisis abates and we're more on the path to recovery. Well, that's uh, great insight. Thank you so much, Luke. Let me summarize for everybody what I think the three main takeaways are from today's conversation. First one is that not getting into each element of the stimulus that has been provided by Congress and and the president, it's clear in our view that this debt was necessary at this point in order to dampen the depth of the recession. Without the stimulus, the economy really would have hit an even harder bump, if you will, maybe even an immediate depression. Although depressions are measured over a longer period of time, we would have been on that trajectory, and, and we don't think we're necessarily on that trajectory at this point. Second thing is that once we get past COVID and we have vaccine, herd immunity, whatever it is, hopefully about a year from now or so, we're going to have to be very careful as a society, as a government, in how we manage the debt that we have. It's going to be a very large number, larger than we ever thought we would get to. We're fortunate that we have a low-rate environment, um, and, and hopefully... Secretary Mnuchin will be very successful in structuring the debt to be as long-dated as possible, which will give us a longer period of time to pay it off. But we're going to have to be very careful and responsible in managing how we pay off that debt and make sure that we don't run large deficits, 3 to 4% of GDP, which is what we've been running over the last couple of years. We're going to have to really have discipline on the spending side. And the third takeaway is that we're going to need to be, as investors in the short term, very cognizant and attentive to the relationship between the, the amount of issuance of incremental U.S. U.S. debt from the Treasury and the Federal Reserve and the Federal Reserve's balance sheet. Because on the one hand, we need to be able to see that there are enough buyers out there independent of the Fed that rates don't go too high. If you don't have enough buyers, rates are really going to move upwards. And that's going to be problematic not just for bonds, But it's also going to be, I think, very concerning to the equity market because as the equity market sees um, not effective functioning in the bond market, the equity market is really going to come under pressure. So that's something we have to look at very carefully. And then we have to balance that and evaluate how much of these bonds are being purchased by the Fed because if that number gets too high in and of itself, 
it sort of starts to smack of the Fed targeting the yield curve, trying to artificially manage the yield curve, as well as the idea that there's not real independent substance to the borrowing of the U.S. government in order to fund itself, but it's really just selling uh, debt to itself. So we're going to be monitoring those issues very, very carefully. I want to thank our listeners for joining us, and I encourage you to visit WilmingtonTrust.com for a roundup of our investment and planning content. You can subscribe to Capital Considerations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast channel to ensure you get updates on future episodes. Thank you again for listening. This podcast is for information purposes only and is not intended as an offer or solicitation for the sale of any financial product or service or recommendation or determination that any investment strategy is suitable for a specific investor. Investors should seek financial advice regarding the suitability of any investment strategy based on the investor's objectives, financial situation, and particular needs. The information on Wilmington Trust's capital considerations with Tony Roth has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy and completeness are not guaranteed. The opinions, estimates, and projections constitute the judgment of Wilmington Trust as of the date of this podcast and are subject to change without notice. Wilmington Trust is not authorized to and does not provide legal or tax advice. Our advice and recommendations provided to you is illustrative only and subject to the opinions and advice of your own attorney, tax advisor, or other professional advisor. Diversification does not ensure a profit or guarantee against a loss. There is no assurance that any investment strategy will be successful. Past performance cannot guarantee future results. Investing involves a risk and you may incur a profit or a loss. Any reference to company names mentioned in the podcast should not be constructed as investment advice or investment recommendations of those companies. Facts and views presented in this report have not been reviewed by and may not reflect information known to professionals in other business areas of Wilmington Trust or M&T Bank and may provide to seek to provide financial services to entities referred to in this report. M&T Bank and Wilmington Trust have established information barriers between their various business groups. As a result, M&T Bank and Wilmington Trust do not disclose certain client relationships or compensation received from such entities in their reports. Investment products are not insured by the FDIC or any other governmental agency, are not deposits of or other obligations of or guaranteed by Wilmington Trust, M&T Bank, or any other bank or entity, and are subject to risk, including a possible loss of the principal amount invested. Wilmington Trust is a registered service mark used in connection with various fiduciary and non-fiduciary services offered by certain subsidiaries of M&T Bank Corporation, including, but not limited to, Manufacturers and Traders Trust Company, M&T Bank, Wilmington Trust Company, WTC, operating in Delaware only, Wilmington Trust NA, WTNA, Wilmington Trust Investment Advisors, Inc., WTIA, Wilmington Funds Management Corporation, WFMC, and Wilmington Trust Investment Management, LLC, WTIM. Such services include trustee, custodial agency, investment management, and other services. International corporate and institutional services are offered through m Bank Corporation's international subsidiaries. Loans, credit cards, retail and business deposits, and other business and personal banking services and products are offered by m Bank, member FDIC. 2021 m Bank Corporation and its subsidiaries, all rights reserved. <laughs>